Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 to 11. Listening and learning. David spares Saul's life. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engidi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hands on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. You see that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Thanks be to God. Linda will now say a prayer for Jackson. Pastor Jackson, may the words of your mouth be pleasing and give peace and hope to all who listen. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 24. Several years ago, we hired a gentleman to do a job on our church staff, and we made very clear to him that we liked the direction this particular ministry was going, and we asked him, can you live with that? Can you come in and take this and move it to the next level? And he assured us, absolutely, that's exactly what I can do. I'm excited about this. He was a part of our church. He knew what was going on. And then within the first six months, he began to make large tweaks, not even tweaks, large changes. And the elders sat down with him and said, no, this is the direction we want to go. We want to go this direction. Remember when we hired you, we talked about this. This is the area we want to go. And again, he began to make these big changes. And then they said to me, as the lead pastor, it's your job. Go sit with him and make this very clear. And so I did. Those are hard conversations. And then something flipped in him. And frankly, he and I had been friends for a number of years, good friends. He then began to pursue me, my wife, and the head of our elder team in a very, very negative way. 
He began to gossip about us. He began to build a file, so to speak, against us. He knew to bring a charge against me as an elder, he would need two witnesses, him being one and one other. And so he began to contact staff that had left and current staff to find out if there was anything else, anyone else he could find, that he could get that double witness against me. This went on for a year. Man, it's hard. In some ways, it's crushing in spirit the way that this works. I don't know how many times I'd walk in our auditorium and, and pray. How many times I walked in that auditorium asking God to deliver me to stop this, whatever it would take, and yet it just continued. It's one thing to attack me. That happens in a church. It's another thing to attack my wife. What do we do when we're attacked? Let me pray and we'll jump in. Father God, we invite you in this space. We know you're everywhere because we know you're omnipresent. But we also know when you move, Father, there's something very significant that takes place. So we invite you to do so this morning. If I would say anything that's not of you, Father, may it quickly be forgotten, for I will only tend to confuse. But the clarity and the hope and the encouragement and conviction comes when I say your words after you, and we claim that promise in Isaiah 55. And then, Father, we remind ourselves of James where it says, may we not be merely hearers of your word, but we would be doers of your word, putting it into practice in our relationship with you and then in our relationship with each other. Now, with your heads bowed, let me give you a moment to pray. And maybe your prayer is just simply this. Father God, my ears are open. My heart is ready. What do you have for me? In Jesus' name, amen. The story of David and Saul is really a contrast of two kings, a king that's picked by men and a king that is picked by God. And really, the conflict that comes as a result of these two kings and these two kingdoms bumping up against each other. David is anointed as king by Samuel, but it would be 15 to 20 years before he would ever step into that kingly role. David fights Goliath. We looked at that last week. And David then finds great favor with the people. They loved him. They appreciated him. They would say, David has slayed his ten thousands and Saul his thousands. And when Saul heard this, his heart cringed and he was jealous and he was angry. Interesting that David even, we're told later, that David serves in Saul's court and he eats at Saul's table. And yet this whole time, Saul is battling a hatred toward David. Let me put it up here on the screen, 1 Samuel 18, 29. One chapter after what we looked at last week, it says, Saul became still more afraid of David and he remained the enemy of David the rest of his days. So outwardly for a while, he tried to make it look like that everything was good, but eventually it got the best of him or the worst of him. Saul attempts to kill David eight different times. He even tries to talk his son, Jonathan, who is David's best friend, into killing David, trying to say to him, David is taking from you what is rightfully yours, the kingdom. He said to David, I'll give you my daughter, but first I want you to go kill a hundred Philistines, hoping that the Philistines would do what Saul had not been able to do. So David is on the run. 
seems like our best guess is that he's on the run for 10 plus years. That is a long time for someone to hate you, for someone to want to take your life. This chapter begins with Saul returns from fighting the Philistines. And as the king, that was his job to keep pushing back the Philistines. But as soon as he gets back to his kingdom, as soon as he gets back to his capital, he's told that David is at En Gedi. Well, En Gedi is a long day's journey from where Saul is, which is north of Jerusalem. Now, let me show you a couple pictures. Let me show you a map of En Gedi first so you kind of get an idea where it is. It is out in the middle of nowhere. It's along the Dead Sea. Let me show you this picture to give you an idea how barren it is. Go to the next one, Doc. En Gedi was an oasis. Now, let me show you another picture. It's, it literally means spring of young goats. <laughs> and I don't know if you can go back for me, Doc. I don't know if you can see them in the trees. The first time I was there and I saw one in the tree, I was like, what? But they are wild. And this is a kind of a crevice of an oasis with a stream, a, a large stream that bubbles through it. Let me go to one more. Do you see with a waterfall in the back? And then what I wanted to show you were these caves. There's caves all up and down this large crevice with this stream that's bubbling all the way down. So David, David being a shepherd, David being from Bethlehem, which is a little distance away, but he would have wandered this whole with his sheep. He would have known this area. He would have known the good places to hide from Saul. He would have come here because of the spring. He would have come here because of the protection. So Saul comes to En Gedi. It says Saul brings 3,000 men, trained men. Now, uh, we understand that Israel has a trained army. These are kind of the specialists. These are kind of the sharpest of the sharp army dudes that Saul has. He's bringing them because he's going to get David once and for all. I'm going to put an end to this right here, right now. We know that David has 400 men. And when we read about who they are in 1 Samuel 22, we're told that they're a bunch of complaining people that have been kicked out of various places on the run from Saul, probably hadn't paid their taxes. You can imagine all these 400. So David is trying to gather these guys like herding cats. And according to God's providence, we're told that Saul stops and he goes into the cave to do his business. He goes in alone. He's the king. No one's going to go in with him to do what he's going to do. 3,000 men in this valley waiting. And David takes his 400 men, and he knows these caves well, and he takes them, and they shove themselves way back, waiting till Saul leaves. But God's design, Saul comes into this cave, probably takes off his robe and puts it to the side. And the men say to David, here's your chance. Literally, no, it's written in the NIV a certain way. Literally, it means today the Lord is saying to you, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Today, David, take your knife Sneak up slowly and cut that dude's throat, man. Let's get this done. Now, these 400 had a lot invested in this because if the king is gone, a lot of what they're in trouble for goes away. And so what does David do? He sneaks up quietly. He takes the corner of Saul's robe and he cuts it. 
Now, you and I read that, and we just think it's the corner of his robe. Okay. It showed how close he got. Okay. Saul goes out back to the 3,000 men, and David takes the corner of what he's cut, and he walks out to the mouth of the cave, and he looks at Saul, and he goes, Yo! Paraphrase. Look what I have. 3,000 men. David standing in front of Saul and 3,000 warriors. Why is this a big deal? Is it only because he got close enough to cut the corner, or is there something a little more significant to this? And I'm going to propose, I think there's something a little more significant to this. The corner of a robe of a Jewish man was called a canal, the wing. And at the corner of the robe, which is interesting because the robe's round at the bottom, but anyway, in the corner of the robe, they would have a zitzit. They would have a tassel. Let me just read to you. I'll put it up here on the screen, what it means from Numbers 15.38. God says <clears throat> to the Israelites, speak to the Israelites, Moses, and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, 613, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by going after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. From that point on, they're to tie tassels to the ends of their garments, to the wings, with a blue, with a blue uh, linen strip that goes through it. Two reasons, they say. You know, did a lot of research, more time than I should have. It's one, it connects back to the priest, because the priest, the high priest robe in particular, had blue in it. It was to remind them that they are a nation of priests that we're told in Deuteronomy. They're a nation of priests. But it's also probably connected to God's glory. The sea is blue, the sky is blue, and God's glory. It represents God's glory. So what is David doing? See, the corners, we are told, let me remind you what Psalm 91.4 says. We'll put it up here on the screen. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge, speaking of God. See, it's God's job to extend the corners of his robe, so to speak, over his people to protect them. It is a picture, then, that Jewish men from that point on were to also extend their robes to protect. Let me remind you what happens with Boaz and Ruth. Remember when Ruth goes to Boaz in the book of Ruth, and she lifts up the cover and slides in. That's a whole other discussion at another time. But she slides in, and she says, put your wing over me. Put the corner of your robe, but literally in the Hebrew, put your wing over me. Protect me. When a Jewish couple gets married in an Orthodox ceremony, the wife gives him a prayer shawl. You've maybe seen these Jewish prayer shawls that have the zitzits, has, have these tassels on the end. She gives it to him, but part of the ceremony is that he unwraps it, he puts it over his head, and takes it and wraps her in it too. Why? I'm taking responsibility for you. I am your protection. In the New Testament, when a woman that has been sick with a blood disease for 12 years comes up 
And all she wants to do is touch Jesus' robe. Now, in the book of Matthew, because he wrote that to Jewish folks, the the Greek's a little more technical. It's not the corner. It's the tassel. The woman wants to touch his tassel. Why? It represented authority. He's appealing to, to Jesus and his authority. So what's David doing? He's cutting off Saul's authority. Because, see, part of the king's description of his, of his job description is he is to be obedient. Remember, the tassels to remind them, be obedient to the commands of God. The king was to lead the way. He was to be the example. He lived under the greater king God and was to be the one who provides and protects and models what it looks like to walk with God. And Saul had left that in the rearview mirror. And David cuts off his corner and he holds it up. It is a way that David to say to Saul, your time is done. You have not been the king that God has described for us to have. But what's interesting is that we're told in verse 5, if you want to look with me, 1 Samuel 24, 5, it says, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his man, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. The Lord's anointed is used three times in this passage, and it's all used by David. David didn't see it as his job to remove Saul. David said, God, that's your job. And I've overstepped. I've made a bold statement, and I've overstepped. Years ago, back when I was still a puppy, my wife and I were part of a church planning team. And I loved these guys, and I loved the guy that I worked for. But he was going through a midlife crisis. He was really struggling, and he needed to take time off. And he just wasn't leading very well. And, of course, with all my great mercy and sympathy, I didn't understand fully. And I was wrestling with, why won't he lead? Lead or get out of the way. I was walking to the door, front door of my old church. This is somewhere else. I had gone back to my old church for a teaching assignment. And as I walked in, a, a guy on maintenance that I knew well walked out, and he stopped and he looked at me, and I hadn't seen him in over a year, and he stopped and looked at him and goes, Jackson, do you know David had to wait a number of years after he had been ordained as king until Saul, God decided to move Saul? Um, Steve, why did you share that with me? He goes, I don't know. I just felt prompted in this moment to share that with you. He says, I'm not even sure what it means for you. I looked at him and go, oh, I know what it means. I get it. Not my job. It's not my job. It says on, it goes on to verse 7. It says, With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. This word rebuke in the Hebrew, it means literally David tore apart his men with words. He looked at them and maybe even physically stood there and not let them leave the cave. No, this is wrong. What you're prompting me to do is wrong. What I did was wrong. And then David calls out to Saul. 
That's all I had the opportunity. In verse 11, see my father, look at the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. David, I have not wronged you to this guy in my story. I haven't wronged you. How many times in our life someone has mistreated us and we look, I haven't wronged you. We've thought, I haven't wronged you. Why are you doing this to me? I haven't wronged you. Then David says, let God judge between the two of us. David calls him a dead, himself a dead dog and a flea. I'm so insignificant with all the other things you have going on in your life, Saul. Then what does Saul do? He hears David's voice. David, is that you? And he begins to weep. The conviction, the emotion that's been bubbling in him, and now to be confronted with David right before him, he just begins to weep. Now look with me, and we'll put it up here on the screen, 1 Samuel 24, 20. Saul says, I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. And then he asked David for a favor. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Next week, we'll look at how David fulfills this promise. But look at that last phrase, David and his men went up to the stronghold. David hears Saul's words, but he doesn't trust Saul's heart. He didn't go back to Jerusalem. He didn't go back to the capital. He doesn't go with Saul. He doesn't trust Saul. David stays on the run. All right. We look at the story and what does it mean for us? Many of us, if not most of us, have experienced what David has experienced in this passage. Let me call it relational suffering. Relational suffering. Relational suffering is suffering that comes from a person or group of people, a co-worker, a friend, an acquaintance, a spouse, a child, or maybe those we don't even know. We see it all the time now. Cyberbullying has become such a thing. Anyone with a Facebook or Twitter or whatever account can inflict some level of suffering. And, and frankly, the closer someone is to us, the more it can hurt the greater sense of betrayal. In my story, I knew this guy. We were good friends. David at one time was respected by Saul. He was in his court, ate at his table, friends with his son. Think about the level of betrayal that David feels from Saul, the level of hurt. We suffer relational we suffer relationally when our character is attacked by someone we thought we could trust. We hear the words that they say to others, well, they're acting so unchrist-like. I can't believe they would do these things. They act so spiritual, but really, 
We suffer relationally when they question our motives, and this is the issue with Saul. Saul is questioning David's motives. He assumes that David is going to push him out of the throne. And, and, and right here, this picture reminds us that's not David's agenda at all. Saul is driven by jealousy and fear. These folks choose not to believe the best of us. We suffer relationally when they constantly critique our performance. They pick apart every small thing we've done wrong. There's no celebration in our successes. They just keep score of our failures. It feels like they're constantly building a case against us. We suffer relationally when we are gossiped about. And what is even harder is when someone shares things you have shared with them personally and they share those things with others. The gossip, attacking our character, critiquing our performance, questioning our motives. They don't keep those things to themselves. They spread those far and wide. And they do it under the guise of, would you pray for so-and-so? The church, we are notorious for gossiping under the banner of, would you pray? Would you pray? It'd be as if Saul said to others, would you pray for David? Oh man, he's really struggling. Or we suffer relationally when they reject us. They cut us out of their lives and we don't know why. They withhold affection and encouragement. They give us the cold shoulder. I find this, especially in marriage and in a family. And David experienced this to a great degree. And if this would happen to any of us, it would wear us all down. If it happens long enough and it's intense enough, it begins to occupy our quiet moments. For months, it occupied my quiet moments. I go to bed at night and replay what was going on, trying to figure this thing out. It can cause us to begin to question ourselves. It can cause us to begin to justify ourselves. And I caught myself doing that. Some old staff would start calling me. Some current staff started coming to my office and go, do you know this guy is calling me? Do you know he's asking about stuff in you? And maybe the worst thing is, we begin to do is we begin to build a case in our heart and mind against those who are attacking us. Our anger turns from righteous anger to a murderous anger that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. We begin to kill them in our heart. May I remind all of us, we feed a Saul-type person when we believe what is being said without checking it out. When we allow that talk to continue without addressing it, instead of holding that Saul accountable and asking this question, have you shared this with them? I'll tell you what, here's what I learned to do over the years. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you two days and then I'm going to call them and let them know that you have some issues. Or sadly, how often do we not come to the defense of the person that is being spoken poorly about? But folks, if we're honest, there's a little bit of Saul in all of us. 
We may pursue people with our words or we may just think them. Both are offensive to God. And sadly, the church is notorious for this as well. Sadly, Saul seemed to prosper in the church because we are unwilling to speak to each other. Nobody can hurt like a fellow follower of Jesus. Why? Because we have such high expectations for each other. Here's a warning to all the Sauls that are here this morning. Our words will not go unpunished. Let me remind you what Jesus says in Matthew 12. We'll put it up here on the screen. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty or hurtful word they have spoken. For by their words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Whoa. So how do we handle the Saul's in our lives? What did I eventually learn? Well, we have two big options, it seems, at first, initially. We seek revenge or we do nothing and stew on it. We seek revenge because why? We want justice. Something's been done to us, an injustice has been done to us. We want justice. In our minds, we want them to suffer what we have suffered. We plot our strategy. We think about how we can hurt them, things that we could say. I have seen this so often in marriage that something hurtful is said and the spouse says something hurtful back and then it escalates. I hurt you, you hurt me. I hurt you, you hurt me. And all of a sudden now it's completely out of control. Both turn to salts. Seeking revenge is easy. It takes no effort. It's what our emotions demand. It's even sometimes what our family and friends demand and push us to do. It's what seems right to us in the moment. We seek revenge. Or we take no outward action, but there's an inward action because we stew on it. If we don't take action, we dream about it. We plot in our minds. It can dominate those quiet moments because we dream of the things we should have said and the things we should have done. And man, if I ever get that opportunity, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And folks, sometimes we privately delight in watching something bad happen to them. We find some sick satisfaction in seeing their failures and misery. Serves them right. Payback. But hopefully those thoughts scare us as we're reminded of what Proverbs 24, 17 says. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. For the Lord will be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. Revenge comes from an unforgiving heart. Both of these options are options without God in the picture. Anyone can do these things, and they do. But instead of revenge or stewing on it, there's a third way. As followers of Jesus, we're offered another way. 
The supernatural work of God is at work in our life, which enables us not to seek revenge. It starts as the gospel reminds us, God does not seek revenge on us for the relational suffering that we have put upon his son. God does not get his revenge on us, but he does take his revenge out on someone, the undeserving one, Jesus. He heaps his revenge on him as he hangs on a cross. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive grace when we deserve punishment. If anyone has a right to seek revenge, God does, because his motives are perfect. It's interesting to me that Jesus does not seek revenge on those who crucified him. I've been struck again in my own personal readings how much Jesus suffered from the Saul's in his life. Paul, too. False statements about, made about him, things that were true but were distorted to fit a narrative. The constant evaluation of every move that Jesus made, every statement analyzed and picked apart, gossiped about. I think I had an issue. But instead of curses, he gives a blessing. He hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because God gives us grace, we see vengeance toward others differently. We have the ability and we now have the power to think as Jesus thinks. And when we do, we are experiencing the power of the gospel to live in this third way. And David models this third option. David shows his trust in the sovereignty of God by not taking revenge when he could have. If he had killed Saul, his men would have understood. Frankly, probably people in Israel would have understood. But David understands revenge is God's to take. In 1 Samuel 26, just two chapters forward from here, and we'll put it up here on the screen. It says, as surely as the Lord lives, David said, the Lord himself will strike him, Saul. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. That's God's job. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans, Romans 12, 19. We'll put it up here on the screen. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I was a young punk. My sister was living in Texas. I went down to see her. She had just gone through an incredibly ugly and difficult divorce. Oh, my goodness, she was so deeply hurt. And I didn't fully understand at the time. It was as I got older that I understood it better. But on her car dashboard, taped on her dashboard, was this verse, Romans 12, 19. It was years later when I asked her about it. She said, I needed to be constantly reminded because all I could think about what I wanted to do back. I could not forgive if I didn't believe that God will bring about justice. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. 
God knows best and will side what must be done with a perfect motive for judgment. We will never judge the situation rightly. Never. Our motives are always mixed in the best of times. If God is in control, then he will deal with things in his timing and in his way. But you know, it's interesting. God will be slow to bring revenge or wrath upon people. Why? Because he wants to see them change. He wants to give them time to be convicted and to change. God desires that they will be convicted of the sin and won over by the refuser of the follower of Christ not to seek revenge. We lay our offending party before God and we trust that God will do the best thing at the right time. And many times we may never see what God does. It now frees us up to be able to work on forgiveness and get rid of our bitterness and our hate. What I learned is that learning to love my enemy may not change my enemy, but it changed me from hating him. When we do not respond in kind, when we overcome evil with good, we share in the victory of the gospel in this third way. Church that I pastored in Philadelphia many years ago, we had a program called Right Start. It was for people going through divorce. And one of the things they talked about was how do you treat your spouse who has damaged you and hurt you deeply? What does it mean to express the gospel in a way that is unusual to the world, who says, pay them back. Find every way you can to love. And you know what we saw? We saw a number of marriages who had been so deeply damaged, so deeply hurt, divorce took place, they got remarried. I've done two remarriages myself in the exact same situation. The pain was so deep. It hurt so bad. The revenge was so thick. And yet, when they learned to respond in a third way, and they began to extend loving actions, and look, it didn't take one day. It didn't take one week. Sometimes it took a year or two or so. But where the spouse would begin to go, what is different here? I finally said to the elders, as we were all involved in this for a year, I finally said to them, look, guys, here's what's going on. I'm getting reports from people who used to be on staff and current staff that this guy's going to people and trying to build a case against me. If what he's saying is true, I got to be gone. You need to go and you need to do a thorough investigation and find out. Because if this is true, I will resign. They did a thorough investigation. It didn't come back. Oh, do I have issues? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Ask my wife. But you know what I have found interesting? Over the times in my life and in my career when people have hurt, and sheep bite, man, I'm telling you, and they bite deep, that whenever I've had these difficult seasons with people or whatever, something happens in their life that I need to go and respond with grace. 
a sickness, a death, something happens in the family that I need to now go and be pastor. It is God's way to keep me in check. Do you really believe this, Jackson? Do you really believe it? Go hold their hand. Go sit with them. Go counsel. With no malice in your heart. Folks, some of you have had Saul's bite. And some of you right now are bubbling in your heart as you hear this, knowing that you are not at peace. You're looking for ways to seek revenge, or you're dreaming of ways that you could do it. There's a third way. As followers of Christ, there's a third way. But it's work, it is hard work. It is honest work. It is being broken type of work. And folks, some of you are Saul's. And you take delight in bringing pain into others. And you do it in the name of of truth. Man, I hope God has spoken to you as well. Because you fall under a judgment too. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, man. It is like a knife, we're told. It cuts to the very issues of our life. It reveals for us the things we really think, the things we really feel. And we thank you for that, that you are a God, it says, who searches the depths of humanity. Thank you. You know our hearts better than we know our hearts. And I pray for those Davids among us who have been stung, Father. Bring healing. Remind them that there is a third way. And I pray for the Saul's among us, Father, that today, today, they would see themselves clearly. And you would bring healing to their heart as well. Father, we love you. And we are grateful for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.